This is Bethany Hughes for the National Trust. I'm beginning my journey in prehistory at one of the very oldest monuments under the stewardship of the National Trust. What I can see in front of me now is a generous sweep of a circle, the largest stone circle in the world, punctuated by massive standing stones, the highest rising 16 feet tall. These stones stand at the centre of one of the greatest surviving concentrations of Neolithic and Bronze Age monuments in the whole of Western Europe. Avebury is nothing less than a prehistoric marvel and holds vital clues if we're going to try to understand the story of us and our relationship to the wider world. The site as a whole spans well over 5,000 acres, so I've arranged to meet Dr Nick Snashall, an archaeologist who's been working here for over 12 years, who hopefully is going to guide me through. I think this is her. Hi, Nick. Oh, hi, Bethany. Lovely to meet you. Lovely to see you. Can I hop in? Yes, glamber aboard. Perfect. So where are you planning to take me first? First stop is Windmill Hill. Excellent. Let's get going. This prehistoric landscape of Wiltshire is now designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Some of its many monuments, such as West Kennet Longbarrow, are far older than the Stone Circle. One at Windmill Hill is about a mile northwest of Avebury. Enclosing an area of 21 acres, it's the largest known Neolithic causewayed enclosure in Britain and predates Avebury Henge by a thousand years. Oh, Nick, what a place you've brought me to. We're up on top of a hill. All I can see is beautiful, fertile farmland stretching into the horizon. I think, are those a couple of deer? They are, <gasps> yes. It feels very Arcadian, very idyllic. Well, we're standing on top of Windmill Hill, which 3,650 BC was a Neolithic enclosure. There's a series of three sets of concentric ditches, which have got causeways between them. So one inside the other is sort of nested like Russian dolls. And the, the central area seems to have been the central sort of probably gathering place. And what evidence is there up here of influence from the continent? Well, this site was a gathering place for the first farmers. And in these ditches here and around us were found thousands of animal bones. And that idea both of farming and actually the introduction of domesticated species was introduced from abroad, from Europe, where it had been available for maybe a thousand years before we decided to adopt it here. And it had come to Europe from the Middle East, hadn't it? That's what we think from between Mesopotamia and then Anatolia and then across. Absolutely, yes. Things like sheep and goats aren't native, so they had to be introduced, we know that. And this way of life what we call the Neolithic package, so the introduction not just of farming but of things like ceramics and building huge monuments like the enclosure that we see here today. That's available in Europe for maybe a thousand years or more just on the other side of the channel and then suddenly about 4000 BC it all happens and we turn our back on the hunter-gatherer way of life and suddenly adopt this whole new way of, of farming and the package that goes with it. So we have a real sort of European influence very early on here. So it's a total shift I mean, it's a really a new way of being 
it's a complete mindset shift. But once people are coming to places like this, instead of living in very, very small-scale hunter-gatherer communities of maybe little more than an extended family or two, then they're meeting people with different ideas. They're exchanging views, they're exchanging what it is to be in the world, and their ideas change and shift, and suddenly maybe you get that momentum. Because this does happen within basically about a 100-year period, all of these monuments are built. Amazing. I mean, it's just such a treat being here. It's so peaceful now we can just hear the birds there's thistles and clover and scavius kind of nodding in the breeze the grass is wet with light but actually amazing to think that 5,000 years ago this would have been a humming hub of activity absolutely totally different from the way it is today So Nick, you've marched me up a hill, very pleased to get a bit of exercise. <laughs> I'm presuming we're heading though towards some other monument. We are, we're on our way to West Kennet Longborough, which is one of the longest Neolithic chambered tombs in Britain. Brilliant. And the body of the barrow itself is snaking out. I wouldn't say like a snake, more like a kind of slug dimensions <laughs> on the top of the hill. Really impressive though. It's almost 100 metres long. Yeah. Morning. Morning. Oh, some people have already beaten us to it, very keen. Well done, <laughs> you cycle up here. Yeah. Good man. <laughs> so it comes down a very narrow tunnel, first of all, and then into the entrance itself. What we're standing in here now is a central passage and we have two pairs of side chambers coming off of it. So to either side of us now, we have a chamber built of these big standing stones, essentially. These are sarsen stones, like the ones from the Henge in the stone circles. So as you come along, you'll see there are two further chambers to either side, and in front of us is a main chamber. When they excavated in the 1950s, what they found were a series of disarticulated remains. People are being placed in the long barrow, and then, at times, parts of them, once they've defleshed, are being taken out and taken to other sites to be used in ceremonies. Because the ancestors were thought to be part of daily life. They could influence what you did in your life. So they were actively used in their ceremonies and rituals. So there are probably around about 40 individuals who were buried here originally. And this tomb was constructed at exactly the same moment that they start building the banks and ditches of Windmill Hill. And that enclosure there may even have been built by the same people. It's part of that wider package of monumentality that comes in from the continent. And what do you think is going on there? As you say, there seems to be a sense of a connection to the ancestors, that they're almost still alive, that they can influence things. Can you kind of begin to hazard a guess of what's going on inside people's heads at that point in time? Because they have no written records, oral tradition is incredibly important. We just hear the swallows in there, in the front of the chambers behind us. <laughs> They're bringing their own little oral contribution Absolutely. to our experience. <laughs> when you have a society that's very reliant on oral tradition, what happens is that the older people in that society become very important because they're your memory bank. And so the ancestors and the elders in the community 
become important as the equivalent of libraries, really, the equivalent of the internet. They're the resource that people would draw on to know how to go on in their daily lives, what they had to do in practical terms, what they had to do in their ceremonies. So it would make perfect sense for people living in these sorts of societies to revere their ancestors and the memory of them and to feel that they could draw upon them and maybe even ask them questions when they're in the afterlife. And clearly this tomb is still significant to the current generation because as I look down, I can see somebody's left a corn dolly and some lavender. So there's obviously been a little ceremony. People do come here. They're actively using it as a ceremonial place. People are finding their own meaning and constructing meaning in these places thousands of years on from their original use. Well, you hope those Neolithics would somehow approve of what's still going on here, just of the fact that we still care about them and their world. Yes, and I think having a memory of the place and their world would have been important to them. At the heart of the Avebury World Heritage Site lies Avebury Henge. The monument comprises a large bank and ditch with an outer stone circle and two separate smaller stone circles at the centre Splendid, vast sarsen stones make up the Avery stone circles, along with the bank and ditch. We're up on top of the bank now, walking on a kind of packer chalk pathway. I hadn't appreciated just how deep down that ditch goes behind us. It looks pretty enormous today. I mean, today when we look at it, the ditch is probably about four metres deep. But we know from excavations that were carried out in the spot just over here in the early 20th century by Harold St George Grey that in fact it's nine metres deep, this ditch. And when it was originally excavated in the Neolithic, its sides were almost vertical. So it's an amazing feat of engineering. And of course this is being done by people who don't have the use of metals. They're doing this all with red deer antler picks. So it's a, an astonishing community effort. But what do you think's going on here? Because life is hard, you die young. Why do you think they put all the effort into making it? Stone for these people was phenomenally important. We know, for instance, that in the wider landscape, we have early Bronze Age burials at the foot of natural sarsen stones. So although the ones we see here today have been stood upright and erected and monumentalised, stone itself is really important. So this whole place is really a sort of celebration of stone and what it meant to them. And I think for the people that were building these monuments, what's central to their lives is the need to ensure the turning of their year. If their crops fail, that means people will die. So for them, the way to ensure that all of these things are going to happen in the right way and in the right order is to perform their ceremonies and rituals. And so it becomes fundamentally important that they come together to perform their ceremonies. And you may well be looking at a time when you're getting bigger and bigger groups coming together for these community efforts. Really fascinating. And of course, this was a landscape that was rustling with spirits and deities. And so it was essential for them to keep that supernatural on side. Absolutely. They were alive with whether it's the spirits of the ancestors, whether it's particular gods, and in some cases, the actual materials around them. You know, the woods, the trees, water is fundamentally important. The henge is very close to the Winterbourne, the watercourse, and many henges in the later Neolithic are built right by rivers. Therefore, it has a ceremonial importance too. 
And at this point in the Bronze Age, is it a primarily British thing or are you finding continental influence? Well, by the time we get to the Bronze Age, which is the end of the use of this monument really, you are starting to get a continental influence. We have some of the first metal-using peoples of these islands and the knowledge of metalworking comes from Europe. It's a sort of transformational time for the peoples of these islands. Very empowering all of that because there's all kinds of possibilities opening up in front of you. There is and what's interesting is that this is the time when there seems to start to be a sort of slight stratification of society and the people who get access to the use and knowledge of how to produce this amazing new substance seem to, if you like, climb their way to the top or maybe they are the most important people so it's transformational not just to understanding of the materials but to how society works as well yeah the beginning of the haves and the have-nots it is So this is where you store it all, is it? Yes, it is. This is our roller racking. <laughs> very, very impressive. Love a bit of roller racking. <laughs> and uh, here we are. I've come into the back rooms of the museum with Dr Ros Cleal, who's the curator here. And you, you've been here for over 20 years. I, I have, yeah. And it must be so lovely, because presumably when there are excavations, you see little new treasures being brought in. I do, in. yes. That's really exciting. I like that bit. <laughs> and what's come in recently? This is from the Middle Neolithic site at West Kennet Avenue. So it's about 5,000 years old from near the top of a Fengate ware style bowl or jar. It's a real privilege holding this, I've got to say. It's quite cool in the palm of my hand. Small, about the size of, I don't know, two squares of Cadbury's chocolate. <laughs> Similar kind of colour as well. Although actually there are little white flecks in it. What are those? They're pieces of the local stone, which is flint. And the makers of the pots were really clever because they only had bonfires to fire the pottery in. And if you put a pot on a bonfire, it will tend to break up. But if you put little pieces of stone in, as it dries, it gets tiny cracks within it and that helps it survive the firing. So those little pieces of flint are a measure of their cleverness, actually. So actually, it's quite finely patterned, isn't it? It looks yes. like somebody's scratched into it, you know, almost a sort of herringbone tweed yes, design. Yes, probably with their fingernails. Sometimes they would push their fingernails into the neck bits. You know, their fingers have actually been there and do you feel very close to them sometimes. But how amazing to be able to hold it now and to think it was somebody who lived mm. 5,000 years yes. ago who made this. And it's a dark black colour. They've chosen to make it like that, or is that just as a function of having been fired? I think they probably chose that because overall this type of pottery often comes in dark colours. And although they were firing probably just in bonfires, there are ways you can get that. So you dampen the fire down with organic material, create a very smoky atmosphere, and you end up with a rather dark pot. And so I think it is intentional, yeah. Beautiful. I'm going to give it back to you. Thank you. So what's in here? Oh, this is our prize piece. <laughs> I always say it looks a bit like the cuttlefish that you buy to put in budgies' cages and things, but it's actually part of a jadeite axe from probably the Italian Alps. 
and amazing. They, they were real status objects, weren't yes, they? Yes, absolutely beautiful. So kind of crosses over about the half the size of my hand. It's a very pale green colour. Would, would it have been this originally when it was polished? It's very, very degraded. In fact, there's one tiny area where you can see the original colour. Oh, it's there, yes. yes. It's a pale greeny blue jadeite. But amazing, isn't it, to think it was so important to the men and women living here that they should own something like this because it proved that they had connections beyond their natural borders and boundaries. Yes, and they're very early in the Neolithic for us. This would have come in nearer 6,000 years ago than 5,000, you know. So it's very early and it's very sort of sophisticated, I think. It's really significant, this, isn't it? Because the axe is so important to the time. That's what you're using to clear the forests and that's what's allowing you to farm and change your world. So it's rather marvellous that what you then do is that you create this beautiful sort of art version of the tool that's changing your world. Yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it almost certainly wasn't used for actually chopping down trees. It would have been seen as something special and maybe even almost magical and different to the everyday axe heads. Do you think they'd have had any sense of how far away they came from? Because they obviously would have known that they came from overseas. I think they would have had a sense of the distance that they came from. And I think at the beginning of our Neolithic, there is sort of contact with the continent. So I think they might well have had sort of ways of realising that they came from far away, that they were distant and exotic. It's humming with stories, this little thing. Just incredible to think who might have held it. Yes. So Nick, all this does give you real respect for the men and women of the distant past, doesn't it? It says something very hopeful about the human spirit. It really does. There's something awe-inspiring when you look at this landscape. The scale of the avenue, Silbury Hill, the Henge Monument, it's really sort of excessive and it speaks to how much effort these people are putting in. They're subsistence farmers, the people are coming here to do this. So this is really giving their time when they're in desperate need of it. And they obviously have connections that go way, way beyond those of the Wiltshire fields that you see around you. So they're wanting to to think beyond their horizons. There's a group from Germany here who've obviously come to visit the site and, and have a kind of spiritual experience. Do you get that much? We do. We get a lot of people coming here. People come here for all sorts of reasons. They come here because they want to connect with the past, because they're interested in the monuments, but also because they feel a, a spiritual connection sometimes to these sites. I'm glad they can, they can find the spirit, even though there's a herd of cows <laughs> watching their every move. <laughs> We're increasingly realising just how well-travelled we are as a species. Naturally, we are nomads. And as humans, we seem driven to reach out across borders, beyond the horizon, to connect with one another so that we can share thoughts and build new families, new communities. So I suppose we shouldn't really be surprised that Avebury is turning out to be such a humming hub of communication and exchange. But even so, standing here, it is really striking to think that thousands of years before the Romans came, Britain was hosting visitors from abroad in the embrace of splendid 
engineering marvels like this. It's all part of a rich story with many different chapters that makes us, us. For more information about Avebury, including opening times and dates, go to www.nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Avebury. Thank you for listening. Don't forget, this is part of a 10-part series, and the other programmes can be found by searching for Bethany Hughes's 10 Places, Europe and Us on the National Trust website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I'm Bethany Hughes. This podcast was commissioned by Ivo Dorney and was produced by Melissa Fitzgerald. It was a Blakeway production for the National Trust. Autumn in the garden, whether it's raking, harvesting, planting or planning next year's big show or the winter's big task, there's always lots to do. It never really stops. Which is why the National Trust has created a brand new podcast all about our gardens, hosted by me, Alan Power, head gardener at Stourhead in Wiltshire. I really can't wait to walk you around some of the country's most stunning gardens, sharing their stories, secrets and talking to the amazing people who help to look after these beautiful places and changing landscapes. So find us now by searching for the National Trust Gardens podcast.